be a great and useful and interesting thing, but the, the awesome combination is Joseph is firstly a man who prizes the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Holy Spirit. So I think you guys uh, are really in for a blessing as he shares. Yes, 
and there was like a but, you know, yes, but. And I think the but is that in this moment when this decision has been passed, well, there's more than one thing. One thing is like backlash, right? Like we know that when there's a victory, when there's a ruling, a decision, an advance in the cause of justice and truth, that the enemy gets enraged. And by enemy, I mean spiritual, supernatural enemy, but I also mean human people who have partnered with the enemy, knowingly or unknowing. If rage, there's rage, there's anger, there can be conflict. There can be conflict in families, in homes, in cities. Uh, you know, I don't know, I haven't been following the news and anything in particular, uh, but I, as I was, I told Travis a couple days ago, when he checked in with me, I said, you know, I, I, I'm ready to speak, but I didn't have any,
my understanding to begin with is that, you know, from early on in the history of this people, they had an understanding of Yahweh as the one God who's like that. Well, like, what can bring that about, right? Like, uh, because you have all these different peoples all around the world who have this consistency of believing in these, all these multiple powers and gods. There's a lot of similarities in the patterns worship and belief. And then you have this one people who has a completely different perspective. Well, the most reasonable, most logical answer to that, in my opinion, is the account in the book of Exodus, where God miraculously brought his people out of slavery and revealed himself in power and fire on the outside. So this was such a dramatic experience for the people of Israel. It left them marked a mark on them that really never went away to this day. And that is that this God is not like all these other gods that all the people worship that we ourselves worship. No, this is something different. He, he had this victory over the God of Egypt. So the, the central thought that I have to share today is that God is with us. He is with us. In the middle of the storm, he's with us. And I, I want to kind of touch on that in two stages and then kind of bring it up to now. And the first one is what I've been talking about. The people of Israel, like they had an awareness of this God who was different than all these people. And it had to come from somewhere. And I, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to just take the scriptures at face value, but now that I'm in this field of scholarship, it's like we have to, you know, look at everything and, and just weigh it. And it is not that we're questioning this truth, but more like, is it how we've always thought it? Or is there something else going on? And in this case, like, I just don't see any other way that this could have, could have taken place. We have these people in ancient, you know, in ancient Greece who know their God. They know that this, this God is not like the other gods. Now, they don't always, I should say maybe, they don't usually worship him right. But they don't usually do what they know they ought to do or what they ought to know they ought to do. But at least they know that Yahweh is different than all the other gods. He's overall Okay? So, something happens in, uh, in the, the sequence of the kings of Israel. And I've been recently reading through first and second and um, and I read about Ahab and Jezebel. So Ahab and Jezebel, Jezebel was from the Empire, north of Israel, and she she came down to marry Ahab, who was a king of Israel. This is after Israel and Judah divided. So you have the Davidic line in the south, and then the line. The sequence of kings begun, begun by Jeroboam in the north. Ahab was not descended from Jeroboam, but he was in that sequence. He was king of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. He married this woman Jezebel, who was uh, the word Baal is in the name Jezebel, and uh, she's a she's a daughter of it's like we call her the king of priests of Tyre, and then uh, she brings Baal into Israel. Now. That all through the Bible, it talks about idolatry and the prophets read against idolatry. Do you remember 
as we observe other people, that like the Lord said to Samuel about David, man looks at the outside and the Lord looks at the heart. Well, eventually, uh, Elijah prophesizes Ahab that he's going to be killed, his whole family's going to be cut off. And there's another prophet also before that. Eventually, the Lord raises up David. And I just always remember, I think I heard somebody preach on it once, that this image of Jehu riding, you know, and they say, look how he rides, and they, they can tell it's him by the way he rides, and he's just this fierce warrior who's bringing vengeance, and he destroys the house of Ahab. And uh, starting in 2 Kings, verse 28, it says, Thus Jehu wiped out Baal of Israel. But Jehu, now I didn't go back here, if you read the last few chapters, Clear that the Lord has raised up Elisha wants as king of Israel. And he's, this is God's purpose for him, is to bring an end to the house of Ahab. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nahab, which he made Israel sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart. Your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Uh, and this is really the beginning of the downfall of the northern kingdom. Because uh, in the very next verse, and they, in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. And so it's like, okay, he got rid of Baal worship. It's a very dramatic story. Go back and read it. You know, 8, 9, 10, you know, 2 Kings, you know, the whole section is amazing. But, but he didn't walk in the ways of the Lord. He didn't fall in the pattern of David. He went back to the ways of Jeroboam. So what were the ways of Jeroboam? So David, young David, David and Goliath, uh, the second king of his united monarchy, is the second king of Israel. Uh, a man, he's called a man after God's own heart. His son Solomon is is wise uh, beyond all people. He builds the temple, builds the palace, but in Solomon's old age, he departs from the ways. He uh, builds altars to different foreign gods for his wives because he married that many wives. So he built them all altars around Jerusalem where they would go and worship their, their respective gods from their countries. Well, Jeroboam, not in the days of Solomon, but in the days of his son, God raises up Jeroboam to divide the kingdom. And it's very clear. He has this prophet, I believe it's. Yeah. Uh, and um, I think I have this marked too. Yeah, it's in like First Kings 11 and 12. He has this prophet come and speak to Jeroboam and say, you know, your God is raised up to, to rule the northern kingdoms, essentially. And so not in the days of Solomon, but in the days of his son, Jeroboam comes back. You can read the account in uh, First Kings chapter 12. 
And he does, he leads the way, he actually, actually was basically, for the most part, peaceful rebellion against Rehoboam and Solomon's son. And he takes 10 tribes with him, 10 northern tribes. But I, and I want to read this to you in 1 Kings chapter 12, starting in verse 25, because this, is, this describes the sin of Jeroboam. So it wasn't actually a sin that he became the king of the northern kingdom. That was God's purpose. Um, actually, when you go back and read, talk, this is part of the uh, prophecy of Ahijah, in 1 Kings 11, starting uh, 37. And I will take you, that is Jeroboam, and you shall reign over all your soul desires. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet. You shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my heart, by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house that is the lineage of the dynasty. As I will for David, and I will give Israel to you. But then we fast forward to 1 Kings 12 11. What did Jeroboam actually do? Well, Jeroboam built Shechem, okay? Doesn't say anything good or bad about that, in the hill country of Ephraim, and lived there. He went out from there and built Peniel. But here's where we start to get off track. Verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill him and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So, verse 28, chapter 12, 28, in 1 Kings. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he said, One to Bethel, and the other to Bethel. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before them. So remember how I said it's hard to worship a god who doesn't let you make images of him. And just, you know, um, he has his ways for you to worship him, and you don't want to go outside of that. Well, like, this was Jeroboam's way of trying to politically keep the people with him. And not only did he create all built altars in two other places other than Jerusalem, but he built these golden calves. So, the golden calf, even if you go back in the book of Exodus, and the original golden calf was built, it says the same thing, Jeroboam says, here is your God who brought you out of life. And so it wasn't that the people were, this is my understanding based on my studying of the scriptures. In my opinion, it wasn't that they were trying to worship God. They were just worshiping Yahweh in the way they were supposed to do. So they identified this Catholic with Yahweh in their name. So for me, that's the really
And so this is how Jeroboam strayed. He did it so the distinction is between him and David. What happened? David always sought what the Lord, you know, what was the Lord's command. He always sought instruction from the Lord. He was humble. He waited. He, he was, he made a fool of himself, you know? But he was okay. He was fine. Uh, in terms of how much he just depended on the Lord's instruction. So Jehu, going back to 2 Kings, he tears down the altar of Baal, but then he goes back to this way of worship that God has already said is way. And I just, like, as I was processing this with China and thinking about it yesterday, um, I'm just going to step out and say, I feel like there's a comparative, a way of comparing comparisons to be made in our present situation in our culture with what was happening in the church. So in the 1970s, the Supreme Court passed this law that was made this rule in the saying that a woman has a right to have abortion, constitutionally protected abortion. Jim and I were just talking about this yesterday. What? Does this what in the Constitution says that? based on things that they find there, this would also be included, but I just like, no. There's something that's actually clearly spelled out in the Constitution, which is the right to life, right? The right, I think it's in Korea. I don't know if the First Amendment. It's been a while. Uh, did you know? Yeah.
situations where uh, that is a very dangerous place for him to be. So I understand the complexity of that. But for a ruling, governmental ruling council to make a decree that in our land, this, this is how it's going to go. Okay. I see that as comparable with setting up a temple of So if that's the case, then maybe what happened yesterday is something like Jehu coming and tearing down that temple Now, or you can compare it with Elijah when he had his confrontation with the prophets of Baal and Carmel. There, that was a victory for the, the servant of the God of Israel over the prophets of Baal. And what followed that is the release of the anger and the rage of Jezebel. So I don't know where we're at in that story. You know? I don't know if we're at Carmel or if we're at Jehu or where. Or, you know, metaphors break down. So this is just an example, comparison. But what happened was Jehu. He rejected this pagan worship of Baal. But what he went back to was not the ways of David. It was not the, the, the worship that was prescribed coming down from Moses. It was in the Torah. He went back to what he had inherited in his own culture of how you worship God. And so I felt like besides the some of the things that Trenton was sharing with me and these, this risk of this cultural turmoil and backlash, I feel like there's also a risk of uh, returning to other ways of calling ourselves Christians and being Christians that maybe are prior to this whole battle, but still are not what God has for us. So I've been contemplating this and like the this golden cap, like what is it? What does it mean? And, and, it, and of course, I believe it's historical. I believe there's layers of meaning. There's just so much intricacy in God's word and how he communicates with things. But in terms of like our context, I think of it as self-sufficiency, uh, strength, greed, pride, you know, that we can do things ourselves. So if, if we're in a church where for whatever reason, we're not experiencing the present Holy Spirit like Well, we can make something. You know, we can make something. We can, we can just run through everything and keep doing it. I, you know, I just like, I feel like that's, I think you know, you know, going through, just going through the motions of religion apart from the actual leadership of, of our um, I, I said there was going to be a couple stages. The second stage is really like the, the coming of Jesus. And I, I don't have time to get into the same kind of discussion on that as it is with the first. But like, so, so just like the people of Israel had this dramatic historical experience that changed different than all the other people. The same thing happened, or similar thing happened, with the coming of Jesus and the birth of the community of his followers. 
I'm reading a book, uh, we homeschool our children, and I'd love to find old books, and especially historical fiction. There's some just amazing things that were written like that in the 60s and stuff, and for, for kids. And so I'm reading this book. Uh, this one was written in 1896. Zeke was out here. If you remember, I'm trying to remember the title, so I'm stalling. If you remember it, could it be? The Wrestler of Philippi is what it's called. It's from this uh, publishing house called Lamplighters that finds old books in the public domain that have good messages. It's very particular gospel messages and republishes them. Well, it tells the account of these three siblings in Philippi, and they're each of them individually having a, an, an encounter with early Christians, mostly Jews, Jewish followers of Jesus at that time. And I'm reading this, and they're talking about the difference between these people and everything they've ever known. And as I'm reading this, honestly, in one, in one part, I'm convicted. I'm still convicted. Because I'm, I've lost some of the uh, spark or sort of like just excitement and awareness of God's presence and so these, these, these fictional books, or these young people have, you know, uh, prayed to different Greek gods, and it's always this push and pull, and scary, and distant, and, and then they, they meet the Jewish followers of Jesus, and they just see something completely different. Well, uh, that's something I want to try to help reawaken, urge us to reawaken within ourselves. This awareness that the living God is with us. Okay? Through the death of Jesus and resurrection, the gift of his Holy Spirit, we have this unbelievable, unspeakable privilege of having communion with the God who created the world. And I'm sure I'm not alone, but in just realizing this week that I, I lose sight of that. I lose, I just get into a routine. I forget. It's not like he's left me. It's not like I left him, but it just, I forget. You know, it's like we're living in different parts of the house, and we occasionally see each other in the hall, you know? And so I just really wanted to call us back to that and awaken in us a true sense of awareness of his presence and of following him as the unseen God. Not to make ourselves a golden path, not to go to a golden and alter someone else's setup where, okay, you can come, you know, I hope someone's talking about that. But you know, you can come to this conference or this church or, or engage in whatever type of worship that you grew up with or you did grow up with and that more connection with God. And there's good things in all of those, but ultimately, like, we serve an invisible God who dwells on the inside of us. He speaks to each one of us in amazing personal ways. And um, so I just wanted to kind of stir that up. Awaken that. And um, 
also at the same time to to acknowledge that we're in the middle of a, a storm. You know, in our in our country, and it's not just this decision. It's something that's it's certainly since uh, 2020, the spring of 2020, when so much changed with the uh, different responses to COVID, etc. We're in a world where the world's been turned upside down. And something that is sort of hard to recognize from the inside. It's certainly hard to recognize from me before you get there. But it's also hard, it's easier to recognize in history books when just everything changes. And um, I think about the, the phrase in the Bible, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. The sun and the stars will fall from the sky. There will be new heavens. That's really talking about cultural setting. That's really talking about everything's different. Everything's changed. You know, there's a new, there's a new leadership. There's a new government. There's a new economy. Everything's transformed. Now, I think that when Jesus comes, and certainly. There will be further changes that may be cosmological. I'm not saying that's not there. But I'm just saying that the main thing that like, I think we should be curious from that is like, wow, the world just got turned us And that, that can happen in so many different ways. So um, I, uh, I had a dream years ago that was a prophetic dream that's been influential in our lives. Um, my life ever since and in our family's life in particular in the last few years. It was it was 21 years ago actually, in the summer of 2001. And when I had this dream, I knew right when I made the dream or when I woke up that this was a really important moment. And so I'll describe some of what I won't call it whole but I'll describe some of what happened. And then I'll explain what's why I'm bringing it up. Maybe you'll hear some of that out. So I was in, a, in kind of like a canyon, but really I have to back up. Because before in, and over and above everything else in the dream, I had an overwhelming sense of the presence of God and the peace that he brings. His peace, his comfort, his kindness. I call it a canyon, but really it was more like half a canyon because there was a cliff space on the left. And then there was a community town, as you call it, built here, running this way. I think of it as north south. And then out this way was the forest. And along through the town was this train trees. Well, the train track, the, there was this contrast between the, the town itself and those train tracks. The train tracks were just like pristine, state of the art, beautiful, well-made. The town was like a ghost town. It was like a, uh, it was all wood and all just ready to fall over and just push on it. And that's exactly what happened. So I'm standing there in this town and I have this overwhelming sense of the peace of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And starting with the scaffolding of built over the railroad tracks, this town, this city town, begins to collapse. The 
whole thing stops. People are running up and down. And I knew in the dream that their response of running up and down was not going to be the right response. And then I have this sense of the leading of the Holy Spirit to go down underneath the railroad tracks, go down underneath the railroad tracks, this little tunnel trestle, get down on my hands and knees. Well, 
collapse in the town that hardly needs explanation. It's a collapse. It's a collapse. It's, it's a societal collapse. But like I said before, breakdowns of society don't come in the way you expect them to. They come in all different ways, and people continue living there. And so it's good to know that God's Spirit is with us, His peace is with us in the midst of breakdown. And that He's He's leading us, we can trust Him, He has good things in store for us. And that's whatever the level of whether it's individual, family, city, etc. Well, when I got down on my knees under that railroad trestle, it wasn't any, it wasn't hard for me to interpret that. God was calling me to a lifestyle of prayer and submission to the word of the Spirit. And I didn't, you know, over the years I think that, you know, it's really just by his grace, he's so good. He's shepherding. He's bringing me back to the path. And so if I look over my the years since, there's a fair amount of that lifestyle, prayer, and submission for the Spirit. And then there's a, quite a bit of rebellion against God's word and his ways. But thankfully, he is faithful. He's continued to shepherd me. And then the last bit, was, I think, was more personal. Well, it's not personal, but coming into this um, wooded area, so I, when I had this dream, I'd never been to the Eastern West, I'm from Oregon. And yet I heard about, that's all, I heard about the difference in the landscape of the, you know, uh, the forests and everything between where I was from, where it's mostly pine and fir, like coniferous evergreen forests, beautiful, amazing, mountainous, real mountains. I'm sorry. I could have helped about that. Um, but, and I heard about how it was out here, and obviously some pictures. I always dreamed about coming and doing some hiking out here. And I had not been Well, a few years after I had this dream, I got to come out, and I remember driving through Kentucky and just like, so, so cool. Of course, it helps to have a parkway, you know, so you can see. see. Uh, but still, it's just beautiful. I loved it. I still love it. I still think it's so amazing here. And so, as the years went along, I had this kind of desire to be this part of the world, sort of awakening. And I won't go through all the details, but when I, we were in Texas before we moved here, in the last year of Texas, when we were deciding what was the next step, we were considering coming to Asbury. Some things clicked in the meaning of this. And the Lord showed me that this was that house in the woods. In the woods. That this was a place of refuge. And so I think we're in a, a time of, I know we're in a time of upheaval, of um, crisis in our culture. And of course, there's many people who are called to be in urban areas, are called to be in much more dangerous situations. But I'm, I'm thankful that he's brought us And the different elements of the symbolism of that family home. It's a family context. I mean, we're, we're a family here, but also our community is a family. You know? Like, you see, there's different bits of, of the family, and I'd like for us all to get a little closer together. But, and then finally, the, Chinese, the family being fluent in Chinese 
family of European descent to not get and um, and having this Chinese writing. So I we live in Calus Village, which is the seminary house in Asbury. We have uh, that I know of two former two families who are former missionaries in China. I think wasn't his family in China as well? Um, they still are. And and so that was really intriguing. Okay, here's these like white American families who speak Chinese. This matches up with something I dreamed at that time, 18 years, 19 years prior. That's really intriguing. And then to top it all off, my father is uh, he visited a few weeks ago. He is a teacher, preacher, mostly retired, but he had done a, a class in China. Secret kind of situation. And while he was there, he they always bring us from wherever they are. My my father and my stepmother, she's Filipino, and it's even more so in her tradition. And so the gift my dad brought me was a scroll of Chinese letters that were minus six to two. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to walk humbly and to love mercy. Love justice. You can remember. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Thank you. He has shown you, O man, and woman, obviously, a person, and viewer, what is good, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Make it right? Well, this is hanging on a wall in Chinese letters. So, this is like 20 years later. The Lord is bringing these confirmations that are just amazing. I, I mean, even retelling it's hard for me to kind of grasp and recognize God's goodness and how He plans things ahead and how He holds us in His hands, how He sees us and with us through the crisis. And you don't have to have had the same experience I have. We all have different gifts, different calls. We need each other. To know that that's true about you, that God sees you, He's with you, He's a God of restoration. Uh, so, I, I'm in closing. I want to read a verse, one of my favorite, or a passage, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, as a matter of fact, two verses. One of them short, and they're really simple. The first one's going to be in Titus, and the second one, Titus two, and the second one's in First Peter chapter one. Titus two, two verse eleven. I just love this verse. My dad told me somehow. My dad talked to me about this verse when I was maybe a teenager or preteen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. There's just so much in those. Like two verses, three verses, and so rich and so deep. The part that draws me to it today is that last part. Waiting. For our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So that we 
are going through this local, global crisis right now, continuing to go through it. And we don't know how long we're going to There's, he reminds us as Christians, and I think sure Jews, many Jews as well, of what the Bible says about what's coming, and the crisis that comes at the end of the age before the coming of Jesus. And there's so much in that that's common and scary, confusing, but I would love for us to just remind ourselves that at the center of that whole story, is the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be here on earth with us. And that this, Paul, this is Paul at your writing of Titus. This is our blessing. This is our hope as believers. So I'm going to jump over to 1 Peter 1. Let's like 
recognize that this current crisis we're in, I don't think this is, you know, the last one. I think we have another cycle that we're in. But this crisis that we're in that reminds us of what the Bible talks about, the crisis that will come, and how just things keep building. There's just so many complications being human, right? Let's, let's remember who's with us, and we're called as his followers to set our hope on his coming. So this is something that we need to do with. I know I do. 
Um, and I have come, as I've seen in my own life, these things that are golden calves. I'm like, God, I need your spirit to give me rest from this. I need your spirit to put these ways to rest. There's a time where we crucify the flesh, where we put to death the deeds of darkness. And absolutely, God would never sanction open rebellion. But I'm just being candid as one of the leaders of this house, being candid. And I've had days of grace in past years where I've been, you know, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut your hand off. I've found that my left arm is so weak, I can't even cut my right arm off. So. Right arm symbolizes control and strength. It's what you form a golden calf out of. So I'm in this Romans 7 conundrum that Paul talked about. The things I want to do, I can't seem to do them. The things I don't want to do, I haven't seem to do that. But Jesus Christ, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will give me, as a big beast, a cow, a cow, who will give me rest? The Spirit of the Lord. And why in that verse it says, to make for himself a great reputation. This is for God's glory. For our good, too, because he cares about the cows. He wants them all. Enjoy that. He wants us to have rest. But he wants his name to be great. Father, thank you that you're the one who leads cows and you lead us, your cattle. And you lead us out of the, the golden cows, the cows that are not right in your sight, not good for us. So we look to you, God, to lead us out, to your spirit. Only your spirit can do it. Only your spirit can give us rest from these ways. Teach us your ways like you taught Moses. Teach us your ways like you taught David. Teach us your ways through the teacher, Jesus Christ. We look to you, God. Uh, we look to your glorious appearing. We say that we are those who love your appearing. We set our hope fully on your grace. That's our only hope, but that's a good, strong, blessed hope. A hope that is an anchor for our souls, our calamity-prone souls. We look to you, and we declare in this house, this place of refuge, that you will do good to your people. That you will cause us to rest from the worldwide calamities and from our internal idolatry and all that stuff. We look to you, the Spirit of God. I bless your people tonight. In Jesus' name.